so often in our practice of, um, you know, this music rehearsal and stuff, what we do is you have these moments of entering into what you're doing and it's, it kind of loses its practice feel and you're actually in the middle of, of something the Lord's trying to show you or allowing you to enter into and stuff. And um, every time we practiced Wednesday night, early this morning, first service, this service, it just seems like the Lord was showing up in so many different ways through that set list. And so you can play the same, some of you that are musicians and stuff, you know how you can play the same uh, chords over and over again and do what's routine. It's pretty simple stuff to play if you play. And But uh, the Holy Spirit writes a song on your heart or he taps into a place of your understanding and you enter into it in the middle of the song or whatever and the lyrics just have new meaning. And, and that's really the depth of... Uh, God's truth and the riches of his word is that we can never exhaust it. This never gets old. We might get tired. We might wane. We might fall off. But the riches of it, the depth of it, we can't plumb all the way down. It's just impossible. I'm thinking about as as we're doing that song, you know, it's one of those... um, just connections to the sermon, I guess. I'm just trying to think of in the sense of we have father issues in our country and in our world, do we not? I mean, we, I, I said it a couple of weeks ago. I was just like, you know, I think the only thing that we seem to strive for is our father's approval. And I don't mean to get too heavy on you this morning or anything, but I do think that most of us really want that. Now, let that rest heavy on your shoulders, dads. <laughs> But you know what? Earthly fathers, as good as they are, as good as they can be, I should say, are always going to pale in comparison to who the father really is. And so as we have had either good experiences with our fathers or our fathers have fallen woefully short, um, all of it is meant to, to point towards a temporary relationship that we have to lead us to one that we will enjoy forever. We want a stability in our hearts that we can't explain. We have this thing that um, we need to tap into at some point, some way. It's going to give us this sense of home or stability or sustenance or something along those lines. It's like we're hardwired to just crave the next thing. And I think that that's there on purpose because God said, you can't make this thing your home. As beautiful as this globe is and all that that I put in it and everything, it's an image of, of what I create but it's not going to be your home. And so while our hearts acknowledge that we want, we want something faithful, we want something enduring, at the same time, the Lord's trying to say, I know I put that in you and I'm hoping all that you find lets you down until you find me. We are hardwired for home. We, we like our places. It doesn't matter if it's the palace we've always envisioned or our dream home. If we haven't gotten that yet, there's still something about when we're removed from our home, whether it be a, a rundown shack or a three-story colonial with a three-car garage and a big swimming pool or any of those things, when we're away from it, isn't it funny how we just want to get back and call it ours, Right? Yeah, the couch has a spring coming up and I have to watch where I sit and all that kind of stuff, but it's mine. You know, the bedroom's cold and it's not always real comfortable, but it's mine. 
sick of staying in these hotel rooms or something like that. After a while, the thing that is, is fun or, or, or the, the thing that calls us out to the road or whatever eventually lets us down because we just want to be home. I think that's how we're created. Rock stars and country musicians have written songs all over the place about getting out on the road. And when they finally get to come home, they recognize the streets and the signs and everything like that. And there's that familiarity that they hunger for, even though they're out there living the the life they've always dreamed of. And so that has to point to us about the fact that we have something inside of us that needs that stability, that needs that foundation. And we're not finding it on this earth. Last week, we were getting into a letter that Peter wrote, the Apostle Peter. And we talked about the fact that he was writing to um, uh, people that were spread out all over the place. They were already in their faith. They, they loved the Lord, but they weren't that well connected because geographically they were spread out. Um, oppositionally, they were somewhat on the run. It wasn't as bad as it was going to get, but there was, there was some pressure there, and so they were spread out. But more importantly than that, regardless of what their circumstances were in the moment, the, the reality is, is that they came, they had an encounter with this radical guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who they've discovered is the Messiah. And the kingdom that he talks about, the, 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 the attitudes and the actions and the acts of worship that he laid out before his, his, uh, his disciples and those that the crowds get to see are now starting to take root in their hearts, even though they're spread out all over the place. And what Peter's starting to acknowledge and recognize in them is that they are living a life in a place that is not their home. I almost look at it in kind of a tongue-in-cheek fashion that Peter started the first homeless ministry, except the homeless people he was trying to reach were people that had an address. They were homeless, but they had a couch. They were homeless, but they had a bedroom. They were homeless, but they had a physical residence. But none of that was starting to anchor them anymore. Why? Because their sights, their attitudes, their affections were longing for a kingdom that they weren't fully living in. He, Jesus had presented something that is, is just an image of the life to come, and they were adopting it. The Holy Spirit was growing it within them, and now they're starting to take root. And now the customs of their people, the location that they're in, it's just not the same anymore. It's not, it's not satisfying me like it used to. Right in the very beginning of the letter, as Peter is addressing them, he says in verse 1, he identifies himself. This letter is coming from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Very quickly, an apostle is one who was personally tutored, mentored, discipled under Jesus, and given authority uh, as, as a leader in the church. But he, he had to be physically present with Jesus. Those of us that have been tutored, mentored by Jesus in his word wouldn't be apostles because we weren't physically there when he was. And the story about Paul being an apostle is a very interesting one. If you don't know that part of your Bible, you should look into that. But Peter walked with Jesus through thick and thin. Remember last week we talked about Peter failed miserably. And yet he was still able to call himself an apostle. If you think about all the struggle that Peter went through, the embarrassment that he went through, from all of his failures, he's writing this title, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in the most unbragging way you could imagine. Most of us would think we've got this title, we're going to share it. Hey, guess what? You should listen to me because I'm an apostle. I mean, let that sink in. He doesn't do that. 
He's writing it, I'm sure, even though he doesn't say it in the notes or in the commentary or anything like that. But Peter, after all he's been through, is writing this from humility. Like, can you believe I get to say I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ? And so he addresses himself and he says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout all of these regions. Now, remember we said that aliens were not the... um, you know, the big bug eyed kind of out of proportion, long, skinny arm things that we see, you know, on sci fi channels. You guys aren't familiar with aliens and stuff. Pretty fascinating. If you, you ever thought about what you would say to one if they came? Anyway, I'll let you think about that for the rest of our time together. I just encourage you to check out mentally. So. All right. But he's not talking about that kind of alien. He's talking about a stranger. He even says that later on in, in, the, in the rest of the text where he says aliens and strangers. These are the ones, this, this is when you're in a foreign land and unfamiliar with the customs. So remember, he's talking to homeless people with an address. He says, you are living as strangers because nothing fits anymore, does it? And they're going, you're right. How did you know? And then he identifies them as scattered all over the place. Now, some of this we might think of from a standpoint of persecution that people started here and then they just spread out on the run. But that isn't the whole description of who these people are. This is the gospel reaching some of these areas in these regions. And it's important when he starts identifying the places that they live. He's starting to give this encouragement to them because if you're an alien and a stranger and you're scattered all over the place, you're feeling pretty isolated You're feeling like a pretty easy target. And in fact, he says that Paul and I, the other apostle, we've been busy kicking down the hornet's nest. If you remember from last week, we said it's almost like they they take that big bee's nest. And and please don't explain to me the difference between the bees and the hornets. Last week, I said, I don't need to know. And some of you still had to tell me. So I've already forgotten. I told you I would. So I'm not going to remember. So he kicks down some nest with something nasty in it. Uh, not literally. And, and so he's saying to them, look, guys, you need to know that we have stood before the councils. We have defended ourselves. We've defended the faith. It's starting to hit home because they're not, they're not buying it for one. They're only doing what's politically expedient for them. And eventually they're going to try to snuff us all out. So you just need to know that we've knocked the nest down and you can start to hear the buzzing that's going on inside. And then all of a sudden the the protector bees are being flown out one at a time. And eventually their perimeter is going to get wider and wider. These bees are showing up in your yard, guys. And I just want you to know they're not there to pollinate your flowers or whatever they're supposed to do. They are there because they want to sting something and you will be in their path. And so Peter is trying to talk to them and say, look, your customs aren't fitting. All of these things are going on. But he immediately follows up with words that we would be otherwise tempted to just gloss over. In the end of verse 1, after he lists all these places that I could try to butcher if you want to hear them. But if not, I'll just let you read them off the screen. He says, you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. And be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If you have read other letters in the New Testament, you're used to hearing greetings like this. Paul has wrote the um, 
probably the lion's share of, of New Testament letters, but also James and John, Peter and others have written as well. And it's very common to hear a very official greeting, something that sounds like may peace be upon you um, and, and a very official kind of introductory thing. All of them have meaning. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're all just there for, for being cordial and stuff. All of them have meaning. But in particular, since we're starting to understand the background of who Peter was and who his readers are, we can start to think about this greeting isn't just a bunch of polite salutations. He shares words that are very specific. He says, you are chosen. In other words, you're in this battle. You're awaiting this, this, this drama or this threat or whatever, almost of no fault of your own. You've been handpicked for this. Now, you could easily say, well, thanks for that. But on the other side of it, it gives us this undergirding courage that says, you mean he knew I would be in this? And the next word he uses is, is his foreknowledge. In God's foreknowledge, he knew you would be picked. He knew your personality would be in the mix. He knew that your failures would be on display. He knew that, that your sins would need to be forgiven. And all of these things he knew so that you would be a part of the plan. You didn't just sneak in under the fence. God knew you were coming the whole time. And so now think about this. If you're isolated, if you're feeling vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, and then you hear that the trouble's only going to get worse, you might think, I don't think they got the right guy or the right girl. I don't, I don't think I'm really built for this. Peter's saying, but you are. You've been chosen. You've been selected. God didn't make a mistake in calling you. What did he call us to? What did he choose us for? What in his foreknowledge did he know would be required of us? And that's that word sanctifying. Sanctifying is a really fancy word, but we talk about it often here at Faith because it's a progress of growth. And it's usually, I like uh, Pastor Bill's phrase where he says it's usually through fits and starts. It's kind of that, you know, I, I love that phrasing because it just seems like, oh, I got so good at this Christian thing. And then I went and fell on my face. And I'm starting all over again. And now I got to... But the reality is, is that when we're growing in our sanctification is we have like our starting point in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he has us growing, growing, growing. And then somewhere down the line, because we are human, not fully sanctified yet, we fail and we come back down. But then we're lifted back up by his grace and forgiveness. And eventually what ends up happening is, is we're failing and being forgiven further up the ladder, if you will. Not because we're getting better for God, but because we're starting to look more like his son. And so that sanctifying, it, it, the sanctification is a process and a progress of those fits and starts, but it is kind of moving on a trajectory that gets us closer to what Jesus looks like. And Peter's saying, this is the process you're on. Guys, don't be surprised if all of these events and all of the things and the bees showing up to your backyard are all part of this sanctifying process. They're, this isn't a mistake. This isn't a blip in the radar screen. Oh, man, we were just getting our church underway. We just put couches out in the entryway, and now we're under perse persecution? That ain't fair. Peter's saying, this is what it's always been. It hasn't been about sitting in a nice couch, although they are pretty cool, are they not? But anyway, it, it isn't the point. The point isn't that it's always been about whether or not we're growing closer to Jesus Christ. And everything in the mix is going to be used for that. God foreknew that this was going to happen, that we've been called to obey, to be obedient to this process, which is sometimes, oftentimes the hardest part. It's the hardest thing for us just to, uh, 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 I think, I think my wife and I were talking about this or something the other day. It was just like, you know what? It's just the hardest thing to just surrender. 
and go, okay. It's almost like jumping in a canoe and letting the current of the river take you down and say, okay, no matter how hard I paddle, the current's too strong. I can't fight against it. Wouldn't it be nice if we just surrendered more in our Christian life, if we just said, all right, Lord, you're moving in this direction and I just jumped in the boat to go along for the ride. But what do we do? I don't like the current. This is moving too fast. I'm going to jump out and I'm going to put my feet in the rock so I don't have to go. I'll get down there eventually, but I'll do it in my own time. And then we just resist and we feel that current on our back. It's the hardest thing for us just to surrender and move forward. I love Peter's prayer. And just this mini salutation, this short little greeting. I'm sure he was just throwing out fluffy words, didn't mean anything by it. He goes, I pray, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Does he know what he's talking about, this grace thing? Does Peter know what it's like to be the aggressive one, be the one that everyone needs to see? Remember last week we talked about his personality was such that he was going to be the most faithful guy in the room or in the circle, no matter what. If you were going to memorize 10 chapters of scripture, he was going to memorize 15. If you were going to start three homeless shelters, he was going to have 10. Why? Because he wanted to be better than you? Not really. I think he mostly just said, if you can do that money, then surely God's grace will allow me to do more. He just had sort of that confidence thing and that willingness. And it was always getting him in trouble because so often the, 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 the um, action became about Peter, not about the mission. And, and remember we said that it kind of hit that climax point when, he, at, when the heat was its hottest. And uh, Jesus was being dragged and beaten and they said you're one of him aren't you you're one of them you're one of those christ followers you you know you speak like him you act like him you're from the same region and he denies them like one two three just denies jesus like that so peter when he says i pray that grace will be upon you is because what grace is is grace is the opposite of what we deserve So Peter is saying, I pray that as the trouble gets deeper and tougher and harder for you, that you'll get some measure of strength that you don't even deserve. Because you know what you and I deserve? You you know, and I don't mean to speak for you, but if you're human, then I think I can, unless you're one of those aliens, we'll have to check your arm length to see if it's out of proportion to, if you're human, then the problem is, is that you and I all deserve to be flicked off the team. We deserve to be flicked off the face of the earth. We, be, we deserve to be cast into an eternity of hell and torment and fire and all that the scriptures say that is not metaphor. That's what we deserve. And Peter knew that's what he deserved. And he felt it probably more profoundly than any other moment when he had betrayed Jesus. And the scriptures even says painfully enough that Jesus looked at Peter like, now do you get it? You're too weak. You can't do this journey in your own strength. So Peter, when he says, I pray that grace abounds to you because he says, because I've experienced it. I know the peace is the next peace that he prays for. I know the peace of being let on the team, even though I have no business even being on the field. I know what it's like to be used by the king of kings when he had every right to just flick me away. And instead he says, I'll come back and I will give you hope and I will restore you personally, Peter. So in just verse two, Peter is saying, guys, you need to gird yourselves, get ready, prepare yourselves for what's coming. And you have to know that this wasn't a mistake. This wasn't something that you just stumbled into. This is all on purpose. So what is the purpose, Peter? 
we jump ahead just a few verses and look at the one that we looked at last week. I know a lot of this sounds like repeat. In verse 7. He says, so that the proof of your faith, Peter, what's all of this about? So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, the thing that is so valuable to mankind, gold, we base so much on it. He says, even as good as it is, it's nothing in comparison to what is the inheritance to come. It's imperishable. Even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. This is what he's setting it up so that everything we're about, everything we're about to go through, all of the sanctifying work that that up and down that fits and starts thing that we go through is for the purpose of one person. And it ain't you and it ain't me. We said that God's glory was the, the consummation, the fullness of everything that he is and everything he does. You and I understand what glory is. We know what fame is, but we see it through the lens of like YouTube. Because our fame can come for a moment. It can come from a mistake. It can come from something cute that our kids or our puppies do or something like that. And then millions of people know our face. So many hits come to our website that we might actually get a few bucks for sponsorship and stuff because our, our, our fame for the moment has gone viral. That 15 minutes of fame, right? God has experienced his own brand of that kind of fame too. And it isn't because he tripped into a water fountain while he was texting, which if you've never seen that, you've got to search for that because it's hysterical. God's never walked into a pole while he was texting. He never had a cute dog that did something adorable or anything. And yet God is still famous for things that he isn't really all about. God has been seen throughout the decades and centuries in slivers of his action without seeing it in the totality of who he is. And so we get these little snippet views of who God is. We make up our own mind and God has become famous for so many things that he does not deserve to be famous for. But what the believers are put on this earth for is to pursue all that he deserves to be famous for. We are by God's grace, undoing the little snippets of bad press because people don't want to understand who God really is. And they want to see who God really is through the lives of his people. Peter's saying, this is our opportunity, guys. It's getting bad. It's going to get tight. It's going to get really scary. But if your goal is on something bigger than just mere survival or having a good life, we could actually accomplish something here. I'm just letting you guys know what Paul and I started. It's going to hit you and you're going to be able to hold up within this. You've been chosen for this. Don't freak out. You're going to make it. And we need to make this point clear. This is the reason for all the repetition in this, because in reading this letter from Peter, we could make the surface application that what God has done is given us these scriptures so that we can improve our lives. If you jump ahead a little bit in First Peter and you jump around from chapter to chapter, you take paragraphs and snippets, you're going to find lots of good help, lots of good wisdom for improving your life, for improving your marriage, for helping with raising the kids, with approaching your job better and all this kind of stuff. Very fruitful things, very practical, wise advice from Peter. But he's not giving it so that we can just have a better life. 
He's saying, if you are going to show who Jesus really is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to conduct yourselves in a stellar manner, even when the bees are swarming around your yard. Because we freak out. We lose focus when the persecution hits. When things get really testy, if we haven't practiced what we're going to be about, then we give in to panic and we give in to fear. So Peter's saying, look, it's gotten a little bad for you. You have a target on your back. And you and I can relate to this because we have forms of persecution in America that we deal with. They're not dragging us out in the street. They're not threatening our lives and everything. But we know that the current is against what we stand for. We know that the world system is very much antagonistic to what God wants to do with his people. And so we're feeling a lot like the scattered, the diaspora who says, okay, give us some hope and some encouragement because it's feeling like it's, things are getting a little shaky. And Peter says, I've got some hope for you. And the hope is that you have to have your goal bigger than just having a good life. When real life shows up at our front door, we start to realize the things that are important. When it's a relative time of peace and safety and comfort, we toy around with things that entertain us, right? We think about, I'm going to improve my house. I'm going to get that other car. I'm going to do, we, we get to think about those things when we're in times of relative peace and safety. But all of a sudden, when real drama hits, those things don't matter to us anymore. When things get really ugly in our house or in our lives or something like that, all the other things that were occupying our brain a week ago just don't really matter. And what that tells us, just like at the outset, what that tells us is our hearts long for something that's secure and locked in. I'll give you a for instance here. Um, if, if anybody knows the band One Direction, I, I apologize. I'm speaking a little bit out of turn. I have no idea what they sing. I, I don't even, if you even sang a line, I don't think I would know it. And I'm not trying to be a snob. Like, I don't listen to that stuff. Because if you pulled out a Backstreet Boys tune, I might know it. Or a New Kids on the Block tune, I probably know a couple of those. So I'm not trying to be like, I don't like that stuff. I really don't, but you know, sometimes a good pop song is a good pop song, you know? How can you deny? But let me give you a heads up. One Direction's never going to be the next Rolling Stones. They're never going to be the next U2. They're never going to be these bands that throughout the decades just have a staying power, a quality about them that if you haven't listened to them for 20 years, you know, and you hear Bono on the radio going, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You're like, sing on, brother. Sing on. Like it just draws your heart and everything. But those songs that make you, you know, dance or whatever for the moment are fun and they're stylish and they're new sound and everything. But in 20 years when you hear it, you're not going to be like, oh, this anchors my soul. You're going to say, oh, I can't believe I used to love these guys. They are so awesome and they were so cute and all this sort of. But you're going to laugh at yourself because you're going to say that was pretty fluffy. And that's what a good pop song does. Is it arrests your attention and, and, your, and your spirits and your interests for just a short period of time. Because you know how I know this? Because One Direction used to be in sync, who used to be Backstreet Boys, who used to be... Um, you know, new kids on the block who used to be the Jackson Five. Who used to, well, before Jackson Five, it was uh, probably like Partridge or somebody like that, or Osmonds. And all you know, so different face, same gimmick. And they don't set out to say we're going to be the next Rolling Stones. We're going to be touring when we're ninety. You know, they don't set out to be that band. They say we've got a short window of Screaming Girls. We're going to make millions of dollars and then we're out. And then in about 20 years, we're going to do a reunion tour for another few million dollars, and then we're out. It's, it's part of the machine. 
and so you know quality when you hear it, something that sticks around. Why, why is it that those are the things that hold us up in times of sadness or in breakups or something like that? Or, or just, you know, that song takes us back or something? Because it's real. It, it reaches a place of substance in our life. And this is what Peter's drawing on. He says, guys, look, right now you've enjoyed some level of fluff, but because you're called out ones, because you're scattered around, you're starting to feel the pinch of persecution. And eventually what's going to happen is all the other things that have distracted you before are going to just pass by the wayside. So Peter says, why wouldn't you practice doing who you want to be becoming who you want to be when the persecution hits, why not start practicing that now while you've got a second to think about it? And there's power in that. He says, if you just focus on God's glory, his fame, what he deserves to be famous for above everything else, then you're going to be able to uphold it when real life hits. Let's wrap it up by saying this, is that in, in the next few verses, Peter is going to anchor um, his reader in understanding. Remember, we started off with that image about you are here, is that identifying mark of where you are, because to throw out like this old leadership adage to you, you can't know where you're going until you know where you are. You have to get real with what you have in your wallet right now what you have in your resources right now in order to start a plan to get anywhere else so peter says i'm going to start the reader i'm going to start you scattered people you homeless people with an address i'm going to start you with understanding who you are in christ first so that you know we can start heading down this way in this journey and so he anchors his 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 uh his disciples in their security and belonging to jesus christ and so what we've been saying all morning in our prayer time, in our worship time, everything is if you do not know where you are or that when you see where your pin is going at your location, you know it's not in a good place with the Lord, why not ask him to move that to the location you know it needs to be? And that place is one of surrender that just says, Lord Jesus, I am coming to you. I know riddled with sin. I, I know it's um, even the best stuff I've ever done on this earth or nothing compared to your perfection. So... I need your forgiveness. I need your saving grace. I need you to set me on a course of living for you that only you can do in my life. Because like the old phrase, I don't know if this is our, our, our central manor coming out or something like that, but the wherever you go, there you are. That's pretty, pretty brilliant. Think about that. Or did Yogi Berra say that or something? That's what it seems like. Wherever you go, there you are. In other words, wherever you move from that point on, you are always in his grip. You're always in the palm of his hand. And the scripture says that no man or woman, including ourselves, are able to pull ourselves out of his hand. The journey of what Peter's going to explain to his people starts at that starting point. You are here. You are in his grip. You need to square that away with the Lord. You can do that this morning. You can talk to one of us after the service is done. You can call out to the Lord. You don't need an intermediary. You don't need one of us to shoot prayers up for you. You just say, Lord, I need your salvation. I need you to save me. But I also want you to make me your child and send me on a mission to live with and for you. And that's what we want to help out with. Would you please stand as we close our time in prayer? I'm going to um, just ask Paul Halley to come up and close our time in prayer. And Paul, if you would, please, just let's take a couple of minutes praying for Pastor Bill, too. Thanks. Let's pray. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, we just uh, 
thank you for this uh, service today. It really uh, touched my heart, Lord, and to uh, feel the, your presence, Lord, with us, and we just thank you for that. Uh, Lord, uh, the strength that uh, we need that Pastor Brent, uh, Brent was talking about this morning, it comes from you, Lord. It comes from you, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And Lord, I just pray that we would pursue that with all of our might and all of our spirit, Lord. And uh, also, Lord, I, I lift up uh, Pastor Bill and Barb to you this morning. Uh, it's a difficult time. It's been a long journey for them both, Lord, in this uh, sickness that Bill has. And we see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's still difficult, Lord, but we just uh, are encouraged by what we see so far. So we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in Bill and Barb and to heal his body so he can come back to us, Lord, and uh, be our spiritual leader once again, Lord. And I just uh, also pray for there are many people in our congregation, Lord, who are who are ailing, who are sick, and who are going through issues also. It's not that we have forgotten about you, Lord, I mean, uh, about these people in the in the congregation, Lord. But, um, of course, Pastor Bill is uh, on all of our minds. and uh, So we pray for each one in the congregation who is going through hardships, Lord. And we know that the same God that uh, is working in Bill's life is working in yours, Lord. And we just uh, thank you and we just pray that uh, we would praise you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.